morning and welcome back to Alger Assembly of God. Welcome back to our conclusion. This is a, our, our final message in this series or studies on the, on the prophet Elisha. Now, there certainly are a lot more uh, biblical accounts and, and other stories, other scriptures, other chapters. We've kind of taken an, an overview of certainly some of the more well-known scriptures and a handful of others that maybe are not as well-known. We've looked at the widow who had lost her husband, was in debt. Creditor was coming to get her sons and to take them as payment. And how God provided for her through the oil which continued to flow, jar after jar after jar, the mighty miracle of provision in her life. We took a look at the Shunammite woman who had prepared a room for Elisha, able to come and, and to study, to pray, to, to be uh, as, as he would pass by. And he and his servant prayed for her and, and announced that God would provide her with a son. She did not have a son. That following year, God blessed her with a son. That child, that son grew up, unfortunately, died and passed away in this woman's arms. And yet the power of God came through the prophet Elisha and raised that boy back to life. Powerful biblical account. A couple of weeks ago, we took a look at some of these ditches that were dug, a very simple next step of faith to dig ditches and prepare for what God was about to do as God brought this entire flood of water to flood the valley and the miracle that God helped them to achieve. Last week, then, we took a look. The powerful thought is that God cares for you. We looked at three brief biblical stories, the death in the pot, the provision for 100 individuals, and then the axe head which fell into the water, the iron axe head that the Lord made to float. Each and every situation reminded us that God cares for you. God cares for me. So though there are many other accounts, we're going to take a look at the, the final part, if you would, of the life and story of Elisha. We're going to be turning to 2 Kings chapter 13. As we take a look at really the, the final, maybe not even the final moments of his life, but the final a biblical record of Elisha, and it actually is after his death. Now, when you take a look at uh, the, the final parts or period of an individual's life, certainly our last words, our last actions many times are rather meaningful. You know, sometimes a, a person's last words can be pretty vivid, can be very special, can be very meaningful to a, a friend, to a family member, something that, that somebody wants to express, or the last actions, I want to make sure that you do this, I want to make sure that you know that. So sometimes those are some pretty powerful things. As we take a look at 2 Kings chapter 13, the final biblical account of the prophet Elisha actually took place after his death. It's a, it's a very one-of-a-kind account. I want you to take a look at that with me this morning. 2 Kings chapter 13, verse 20 and 21, will introduce Elisha in this account. Verse 20 says, Elisha died and was buried. Kind of a simple, short, to the point statement. But it continues. Moabite raiders used to enter the country every spring. Once, while some Israelites were burying a man, suddenly they saw a band of raiders. 
So they threw the man's body into Elisha's tomb. When the body touched Elisha's bones, the man came to life and stood up on his feet. Wouldn't that be a powerful biblical account to be a part of? If you were in the area, here you are, one of your friends or buddies perhaps, somebody that you know has passed, and you're getting ready, you're you're kind of digging and trying to, to prepare a place to put this individual in, and in the distance you see some Moabite raiders, you know, the the individuals who would come and probably conquer and overtake it, kind of the the mean ones in the school who would beat you up and take the lunch money. I I mean, they didn't want to have anything to do with them. They see them in the distance. They don't complete their task. They don't finish it. They just simply toss the guy into this, this hole, this grave, which happened to be right where Elisha was buried. The man touches the bones of Elisha, and immediately springs to life. Now hear me. This is not that Elisha's bones are magical. These are not magical bones. But this is the power, this is the might of a powerful, mighty God able to, in that instance, choose to allow this man to be brought back to life. But it gets me to think, as we look at Elisha, we're going to kind of take a look in just the next few moments at the sandwich of scriptures surrounding this text. As we take a look at Elisha, we've seen how he has been used of the Lord doing some mighty miracles. And here is this final miracle, if you would, even after death, we see that he was able to leave a legacy. So we're going to be taking a look at the this morning. How do we leave a legacy? We're going to be looking at the the scripture and the biblical account that took place before this, as well as the verses that took place after this text, and try to get an understanding at some point in time, when we do pass on, what kind of legacy will be left? Now granted, that's, that's certainly not the type of thing that we love to think about, but how many of you know Unfortunately, many times we are confronted with the reality of loss or confronted with the reality of death. The last month or two, there's been certainly individuals that we know, individuals in our community, individuals in this church who have lost loved ones. Just last month, we mentioned about the loss of our assistant superintendent in the Assemblies of God here in Ohio. Someone whom so many different pastors and so many different churches and so many different leaders and so many different church individuals knew, Pastor Jim Palmer. That was the week of a rather well-known individual, an individual who was known for bouncing a basketball and dunking a basketball. This was literally six days after the news about Kobe Bryant. And we saw how the world not just the sports world, the world literally stopped to mourn the loss of an individual. Now, whether it's Kobe Bryant, whether it's a Pastor Jim Palmer, whether it's a family member, whether it's somebody in our community who has lost a loved one, when you and I go through that time of loss, unfortunately or fortunately, it gets us to think about our life 
How are we living it? What kind of a legacy will we leave behind? Because fortunately or unfortunately, in this chapter, there are a number of deaths. There are some kings who have passed away. The prophet Elisha passes away. This man, it's an unnamed individual who passed away. They were digging his grave. They throw him into Elisha. He touches the bones and comes back to life. But in a time of loss, in a time of death, it grasps our attention. It grabs a hold of our heart. We would prefer not to be in that situation. And many individuals, perhaps almost everyone in this place, has lost someone near and dear to your heart. And at some point, it, it gets us to thinking, what would that be like? What kind of a legacy, what kind of a, a passing would I leave behind? So this morning, as we take a look at some of these lives and certainly the life of Elisha and others, I believe it's going to help us to reflect on our life, refocus how we live, we're going to examine how do we leave a positive, godly, spiritual legacy. Number one, I believe we need to live a godly example. If we want to leave a godly legacy behind, we've then got to live a godly life and live that godly example. So back up with me. We're in 2 Kings chapter 13. We've read this, this middle section of the sandwich, if you would, about the loss of Elisha, the man who had passed away, who came back to life. Back up with me to verse 10. It says, In the 37th year of Joash, king of Judah, Jehoash, son of Jehoahaz, became king of Israel in Samaria, and he reigned 16 years. We'll stop right there. I know that verse sounds incredibly thrilling. And I know that you, you just wish we could have, you know, 10 more, 20 more verses of this. But this, this is very common throughout the book of Kings, First and Second Kings. It's an account of the king. So we've got Israel, we've got Judah, and we read about a king. And in some cases, maybe they get a, a few sentences. In some cases, maybe they get a few paragraphs. And in some cases, maybe it's a couple chapters. But it kind of goes back and forth between the kings of Israel, northern kingdom, and the kings of Judah, the tribe of Judah, who, when the, the kingdom was divided, became that southern kingdom. And it goes back and forth, and we, we read about this king, and it sums his life up, and, and it, it kind of says, okay, during the reign of so-and-so, if they're talking about the king of Israel... They'll kind of refer in, in whatever year of the king of Judah. So you, you've got an idea of this understanding of the timeline. So we're taking a look at that. And that verse isn't necessarily the most thrilling, but hang on with me. Verse 11, Jehoash did evil in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn away from any of the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which had caused Israel to commit. He continued in them. As for the other events of the reign of Jehoash, all he did and all his achievements, including his war against Amaziah, king of Judah, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Israel? Jehoash rested with his ancestors, and Jeroboam succeeded him on the throne. Jehoash was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel. Again, it's a fairly common description. Here's the king. Here's kind of 
a little bit of what he did, how he reigned. He died. Here's the timeline. Here's the time frame. But what's interesting is sandwiched around this, this mighty man of God, this prophet by the name of Elisha, is this man, Jehoash, who the word of God says he did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and he did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam. It's a little bit out of the ordinary of this description. It's not just about King Jehoash, here's how he lived, here's what he did, here's how he passed away. They're referring him back to Jeroboam. He didn't turn from the sins of Jeroboam. He continued in sin and in evil. So you might be sitting there wondering, well, who in the world is Jeroboam? And what are his sins? Why is he mentioned? Why is he kind of a wicked, evil, sinful man? Glad you asked. Let's just summarize by saying, Rehoboam, uh, Jeroboam was the first king of the divided northern kingdom of Israel. Now, he's got a little bit of an extended uh, record, and in multiple cases, in multiple places in the Word of God, it specifies that he caused Israel to sin. The actions that he did, the things that he did in his leadership, in his life, in his example, were not godly. They were wicked, evil, sinful, and as a leader, he led them into sin, and he caused them to sin. Let me just recount a handful for you. He instituted golden calves as objects of worship. Instead of worshiping the one true God, he created images of golden calves and said, worship them. Now, that doesn't sound like a new idea, does it? Children of Israel did that. Moses, remember, Moses found out about it. He was, he was going to the mountain of the Lord, hearing from the Lord, and, and coming back with the tablets of stone that were inscribed by the very hand and finger of God and saw that they, they had this, this golden calf. Remember, he, he slammed the, the, the tablets down, took that golden calf, ground it into powder, mixed it with water, and had the Israelites drink it. I mean, that's like the first... Biblical case of Kool-Aid. Just call it golden Kool-Aid. This is exactly what King Jeroboam was doing. Instead of worshiping God, he crafted and created golden calves, golden cows, and said, yeah, go worship this image. Go worship this idol. Wicked, sinful, and against the Lord. As well, he changed the place of worship. God had instituted that they would go to Jerusalem to worship, and under the, the guise of convenience, he said, well, that's a little too far for everybody. Let, let's have two places in Bethel and in Dan. So you can go there. Changing what God had instituted to say, here's what you're going to do. And here's how and where we're going to worship. So he instituted golden calves to worship. Changed the places of worship Thirdly, he appointed priests who were not from the line and lineage and tribe of Levi to be priests. Twelve tribes, and, and God had instructions, but God had his hand upon the tribe of Levi. These were the Levites. They were the ones who were going to be overseeing in the, in the worship and, and the, the care of the, the temple, the tabernacle. They had responsibilities 
And instead, he just kind of allowed other people, again, doing things when it comes to worship of the Lord without consulting with the Lord. And then as well, he, he changed some of the times of when you would celebrate some of these feasts that the Lord had ordained. The Feast of Tabernacles changed the month and day. So here is a man who instituted many different ways, many things that were sinful and against the Lord. And in our text, King Jehoash, it specifically calls him out. It says he did evil, and he did not turn from these particular sins. He continued in much of those very same things, sins that were against God. So this is the kind of king that we're taking a look at. And what we're seeing from him, in a sense, it's how not to leave a legacy. Elisha was a godly man living a godly example, and we see this very much contrasted with Jehoash. In order to leave a godly, powerful, positive legacy for the Lord, we've got to live a godly example. It's faithfulness to him. Turning from the sins that we're tempted by. Turning from the sins that the world deems okay. If we take a look at our, where our, our culture is and where our culture is shifting, things that even just a handful of years ago, 5, 10, 20, 30 years ago, that would have, have seemed inconceivable even in the eyes of the world, has been so flipped and things that the Word of God declares as sinful, mankind says it's to be honored, it's to be lifted up. And if you don't agree with that, you're on the wrong side of history. There's the phrase, wrong side of history. I don't want to be on the right side of history. I want to be on the right side of God. I want to honor and approve, and I want to live in accordance with what God has said in his word. King Jehoash was not doing that. Elisha, the prophet, was. We've got to live a godly example. He followed after sinful, wicked, evil examples. Here's the thing. You and I have got a choice to make. No doubt we've got people in our lives, some of whom are, are godly and powerful. They're following after God. No doubt there's others in, in our lives, others in our families, others in our communities who are choosing not to serve God. But the choice is up to you. The choice is up to me. Whom will we follow? And how will we live? And it's not just for the here and now. It's not just that we're being obedient to the Lord and honoring to him and faithful to him. But begin to fast forward a number of years. What kind of legacy are we wanting to leave behind? The legacy of Elisha was the legacy of a godly man, a godly example that was faithful to be seen. And it was incredibly contrasted with King Jehoash. He was not godly. He was not serving the Lord. He was not following the things of the Lord. Live a godly example. Don't just talk it, but live it. Oh, what, are, what are those words? What are those phrases? Talk is cheap and actions do what? 
Speak louder than words. We can be awful good sometimes with our words. We can be awful good by saying the right things, knowing the right things, but are we living in obedience to what God's word has to say? It's not just that we talk a good game. How will we live? Is it pleasing to the Lord? Is it in obedience to the Lord? Are we following what he has declared in his word? Don't just talk it, but live it. We're not, we're not just talking about a good life. There's a lot of good people who do good things. God's word encourages us not just to live good, but to live godly, pleasing, obedient to what God has in store. So if we want to, if we want to leave a powerful legacy behind, we live a godly example. Secondly, I believe we must serve God to the end. Serve God to the end. Here's, here's one verse of Scripture as we continue in this account. Verse 14 now we're introduced back to Elisha. So we, we had the, uh, the, the verses that kind of give that sinful, wicked king of Jehoash account. One verse of scripture in verse 14, it says, Now Elisha had been suffering from the illness from which he died. Jehoash, king of Israel, went down to see him and wept over him. My father, my father, he cried, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. Now, if you're reading through the Word of God, and if you've been reading through in, in 1 Kings and, and 2 Kings, this particular phrase might have stuck out in your mind. Because you can back up to 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 12. And these are the exact words that the prophet Elisha spoke out when Elijah the prophet was taken to heaven in a whirlwind. Elijah was that mentor who, who basically had, had kind of found Elisha. God called him to anoint him. He would, in a sense, kind of work with for a number of years and then continue the ministry, being that prophet. He requested that double portion of the Spirit of the Lord that was upon the prophet Elijah. And when he was taken to heaven in a whirlwind, those were the words Elisha cried out. My father. My father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. So it's interesting. Here's a wicked, godless, evil, sinful king who the scripture says wept and said these words about Elisha, the same words Elisha said about Elijah. Well, if you take a look at some of the, the biblical authors, uh, some of the commentators as they interpret some of these things, uh, there's two schools of thought on this. So let me just present them basically to you. One, one group of commentators would say that King Jehoash, as wicked and evil and sinful as he was, there was some genuine remorse. And these, these tears were genuine. He was genuinely sad or sorry to see this prophet deal with this incredible illness, which eventually would take his life. On the flip side, other commentators would say, Yes, he wept, and yes, he said those exact words, but it wasn't that there was something genuine in him. It was because there was something selfish in him. He didn't follow after the Lord. He just simply called upon the Lord's prophet when he got in trouble to help get him out of a jam, and now his 
what he might have called his magic potion, this man of God was about to die. And so he was weeping for him for selfish reasons because he couldn't call on him when he was in trouble anymore. Either way, the scripture simply says he wept, he said those words, and this is how the godly man of Elisha was connected once again right before death with this wicked, sinful man, King Jehoash. In this particular chapter, scholars would believe that Elisha is probably around 75 or 80 years old. They might say he was probably in his 20s, maybe 25 to 30, when the Lord called him into ministry through the prophet Elijah. He was his servant for five or more years, which would put him into the service for the Lord perhaps for 40 to 50 years. So he's getting up in years, not just in age. The Bible says he's facing this difficult illness, and it was the illness which would eventually take his life. Now, if you're up in years and you're facing a deep illness, serious illness, most individuals would probably kick back, take it easy, and just try to, try to do things as comfortable as possible. And yet, what do we see about the prophet Elisha? He was faithful to serve God even to the very end getting older, dealing with difficult physical illnesses, which would eventually take his life, and yet he was faithful to speak the voice of the Lord even to this sinful king, King Jehoash. Kind of reminds me, I'm, I'm sure at some point in time I've, I've referenced my dad. Um, I've told you the story how I'm kind of the, the oops baby. Mom and dad had... Four kids. Years and years later, here comes little Marky. So my dad was in his 40s when I was born. My mom was in her upper 30s. So I you know, kind of grew up as that, that only child. Because all my brothers and sisters were teenagers when I was born and mostly out of the house. And so uh, for me, I was a, a little younger by the time my parents were in their 60s. I'm in my 20s. When dad's in his 60s and they're kind of semi-retiring, had left the church, um, you know, built a house, him physically in his 60s, doing everything in the house, literally except for pouring the foundation. And he got to the point where he was putting his library together, his study. Here's my dad who had pastored, been in ministry still for more years than I have been alive even currently. 45 plus years of ministry. Who knows how many thousands of sermons and Bible studies and lessons he's taught and preached. And he's in his 60s. He is physically building and laboring and, and completing everything about this house. Nailing his fingers together with an automatic pneumatic nail gun in the process. I mean, electrical, plumbing, Flooring, I mean, you name it, he did it all. He would think in his 60s, that's about time to just kind of kick back, relax, and just rest on your laurels of 40 plus years of faithful ministry. He'd had boxes and boxes of books as 
many of us in ministry have. And he'd stored them in, in uh, one of my brother's uh, garages or something. And, and they had a flood and a lot of those boxes were kind of ruined. He'd gone through them and brought some of the things that were salvageable. And it's a, a great used Christian bookstore up in Springfield. And almost like a, a, a kid in a candy store went to trade or swap out or purchase commentaries to line his shelves of his study. So in his 60s, having preached thousands and thousands of times, 45 plus years of faithful ministry, he could continue to study to be found faithful in the sight of the Lord. That's, that's kind of what I see here in the prophet Elisha. He had been faithful. He had served probably about 45 years or more as the Lord's prophet. We don't see every single thing that God had called him to, but we see many, many biblical accounts, and you can continue to read many other chapters to see that. And as he's getting older in life, as he's got a serious illness in life, he is nearing the point of death God has something. God's got a, a plan. God's got a mission. God's got a task for him to connect with this wicked, evil king, King Jehoash. And Elisha is faithful to do it. I want to encourage you and I this morning. Understand that God is not finished with you yet. It doesn't matter what age or stage of life we might be in, God's got more that he can do in and through you. Let us be found faithful to the very end, whenever that might be. God has more in store for us to do. Now, physically, he might not have been able to do everything he did as a younger prophet, but he was faithful to hear the voice of God, and he was faithful to then put into practice all that God had said. That's a great challenge for you. That's a great challenge for me. No matter where we might be, we hope we've got many, many more years ahead of us. So let us live. Let us live a godly example, and let us serve God to the very, very end faithfully. Thirdly, I believe we need to obey God wholeheartedly. Obey him wholeheartedly. These next number of verses, it's an interesting part of the biblical account. Verse 15, Elisha is interacting with King Jehoash, and Elisha says, get a bow and some arrows. And he did so. Take the bow in your hands, he said to the king of Israel. When he had taken it, Elisha put his hands on the king's hands. Open the east window, he said, and he opened it. Shoot, Elisha said, and he shot. The Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Aram, Elisha declared. You will completely destroy the Arameans at Aphek. Then he said, take the arrows. The king took them. Elisha told him, strike the ground. He struck it three times and stopped. The man of God was angry with him and said, you should have struck the ground five or six times. Then you would have defeated Aram and completely destroyed it. But now you will defeat it only three times. Let's kind of break this down. In our text, 
which already is interesting because we've got a wicked, sinful king contrasted with a, a godly man of God, a prophet who's faithful to obey God. And yet, in the midst of this sinful king, we see he's actually faithful and obedient to what God's saying through the prophets. He obeys up to a point, right? In our, in our text, he was told to go get a bow and arrows. Didn't tell him why. Go get a bow and arrows. He faithfully obeyed. He was told to, to take the bow in his hands, and he faithfully obeyed. Now, the prophet had placed his hands upon his hands. It's symbolic of the Lord's hands coming upon and, and coming alongside of. He was told to open the east window. Uh, east window. What's a window? The east window. He was told to open the east window, and he faithfully obeyed. And then he was told to shoot the arrow, and he faithfully obeyed. And we say, well, why in the world would you shoot an arrow? It was kind of a, a symbolic thing that a king might do when he was about to attack. Now, you know, we think, you know, you would post something on Facebook or a put a tweet out on Twitter or, or a, a, you know, put a snap on Snapchat or I'm going to be interviewed by CNN or Fox News and let everybody know we're, we're going to conquer this land. This was the symbolic thing. Kings would shoot the arrow towards the land they were going to conquer. So up until this point, he remarkably obeyed. And he shot the arrow and the prophet Elisha said, okay, you're going to Completely defeat Aram at Aphek. Now these next couple of verses are interesting because the scripture says, Elisha said, take the arrows and strike the ground. Now, I presented you a few moments ago with some difference of opinion in biblical scholars and commentators. Let me just burst your bubble and say, here's another instance where commentators and scholars don't always agree. So let me just, I'll give you both sides, and then you can be the scholar and determine which one you lean towards. I've read this text in 10 to 15 different uh, translations or versions. The majority of them all use that word strike. Strike the ground, and then it says he struck the ground. One of those 10 or 15 says hit the ground, and it says he hit the ground. Another one says, smite the ground, and he smote the ground. I know we're confusing you here. But the question is, what exactly was he asked to do, and what did he do? Now, when you and I hear that word strike, as many commentators believe, they would imagine, he says, you know, take the arrows, and he's got this handful of arrows, and he says, strike the ground. And we envision him taking that handful of arrows and striking the ground says he did it three times. Other commentators will look at that and say, well, understand the text. He had just asked him to get a bow and arrows. He just asked him to put it in his hand. He just asked him to open up the window. And he just asked him to shoot an arrow. So those commentators, those scholars would say, when the prophet said strike the ground, what he really meant was shoot the arrows into the ground rather than that far off shot de de declaration of war. In the grand scheme of things, it's fun to argue. In the reality, 
whether he shot it three times into the ground or took and struck them three times into the ground. The bottom line is he only did it three times. Sidebar, three is a really good number. Most of you know that with me, huh? Kim and I met on July 3rd. Her birthday is October 3rd. We got married on June 3rd. And we say when it comes to a marriage, it's God and you and me. God at the center of a husband and a wife. So we love three, but in this case, three is not so good of a number. The, the quiver of arrows would, would probably have held at least six, eight, ten, maybe twelve arrows, and he had already shot one. So perhaps he had a whole bunch of arrows in the quiver. So whether he's striking the ground or whether he's shooting the arrows... The prophet didn't tell him how many times to do it, but the encouragement was, strike the ground. So he did it three times and stopped. It was, it was kind of that half-hearted, go part way kind of effort. And it's interesting because it says that the prophet was angry. Like, what's the big deal? You just kind of tap the ground. He said, you should have at least done it five or six times or more. Then you would have completely destroyed your enemies. As it is, he says, you will only defeat it three times. So, interesting text, interesting biblical account. It was interesting that his effort, in a sense, determined how much the supernatural hand of God was going to unite with his natural capability. What kind of trust, what kind of faith, what kind of confidence, what kind of obedience? Now, he didn't tell him how many times to do it, but he gave kind of that half-hearted effort and stopped. Now, we can look at that and go, oh, I can't believe he, done, he, he had done that because I would never have done that. Sometimes we do the very same thing. God calls us to obedience. And we read through the word of God and we say, yeah, I don't really want to do all of that. So let me just kind of tap the ground three times and let me obey God partway. I'm going to read in God's word where it talks about loving God. And so, okay, I'll love God. But then it talks about loving our neighbor. I'm not sure about my neighbor. I'm not sure about my classmate. I'm not sure about my coworker. I'm not sure about this person or that person because, I mean, they're kind of a jerk, so I don't want to love, honor them. And sometimes what happens is we go through the word of God and we pick and we choose what to obey. It's kind of half-hearted obedience. We're kind of, kind of tapping the ground a, a few times. We're obeying enough to say we're obeying, but it's not a wholehearted, complete obedience to God so the prophet Elisha says listen it was a it was a half-hearted effort you did it three times it should have been in a whole bunch of times and you would have completely overtaken them he says as it is you'll defeat Aram only three times I think the challenge for us this big picture thought of how can we leave behind a true legacy of Faith in the Lord, trust in the Lord. It's not just the fact that we're living a godly life and living a godly example. It's not just that we're doing all the way to the very end, but that our obedience is complete. 
Our obedience is wholehearted. As we read through the word of God, we are trying to put into practice and to obey all that God says. We're not picking and choosing which things we'll agree with and which things we'll obey and and which things we'll kind of let slide and overlook. But that we would have a wholehearted obedience to what God's word has to say. How do we leave behind that legacy of faith? It's by living a godly example, serving God to the end, obeying God wholeheartedly, and one final thought this morning, recognizing God's faithfulness. Recognizing God's faithfulness. This next passage of Scripture is the other sandwich. We began with the the text in the middle that declared that Elisha passed away, and when another man hit or touched his bones and his corpse, he was brought back to life. There's this this miracle of, of God using him even after he had passed. So we've examined the, the scripture that comes before. Now we're going to take a look at the scripture that comes place and, and takes place afterwards. Verse 22. Hazael, king of Aram, oppressed Israel throughout the reign of Jehoahaz. But the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion and showed concern for them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. To this day, he has been unwilling to destroy them or banish them from his presence. Hazael, king of Aram, died, and Ben-Hadad, his son, succeeded him as king. Aha, verse 25. Then Jehoash, son of Jehoahaz, recaptured from Ben-Hadad, son of Hazael, the towns he had taken in battle from his father Jehoahaz. Listen to these, this last sentence. Three times Jehoash defeated him, and so he recovered the Israelite towns. Three times. Just a number of verses earlier, no doubt much earlier when it comes to chronologically, we see that King Jehoash did not wholeheartedly follow through with, he struck the ground three times and stopped, and the prophet said, you'll only conquer this land three times. Fast forward. Elisha passes. He's buried. The unnamed man passes. He's tossed in the grave, is brought back to life. A little bit later in Scripture then, we're brought back to King Jehoash. And God's word says what God said just a number of verses earlier. You'll conquer them three times. And indeed, verse 25, three times he defeated him and recovered the Israelite towns. Here's something we can understand. Here's something we can acknowledge. Here's something we ought to recognize. God is faithful and his word will come to pass. Very clearly, God spoke through the prophet and said, as a result, you'll be successful, but only three times. You won't entirely conquer this other land, but you'll be able to do it three times. Towards the end of this text, towards the end of this chapter, exactly what God said would take place, took place. God is faithful. God is true. And here's the fact. God's faithful in the good times, as well as the bad. Simply because we go through difficult times, 
it doesn't take away from his faithfulness. God's faithful in the good and the bad. God's faithful in the ups and the downs. God's faithful before, during, and after the hardships and trials of life. He's faithful. We can count on him. We can trust in him. The things that we do, the, sometimes the, the dumb things that we do, the sinful things that we do, it doesn't take away from or change the fact that he is faithful. Elisha lived faithful. King Jehoash did not. God's word took place exactly as he had said. Understand, there is no expiration date on God's faithfulness. It continues. What God had said in the past, it seems like, boy, God's not doing anything. Doesn't God remember what God said? There's no expiration date on the faithfulness of God. We've got to understand and recognize that. He is a mighty and a powerful and a faithful God. What he says will come to pass. We can trust in him. No matter where we are in our stage of life, take a look back. For some, maybe it's a, a week. For some, it's a month, years. We can look back and see how God has faithfully guided, faithfully directed, faithfully provided, in some case, faithfully healed. God has been a faithful God. Doesn't mean everything we've wanted we have gotten, but he is faithful. And the things that he has declared, the things that he has said, what he has promised in his word will come true. Recognize the faithfulness of God. And begin to point to and encourage other people in the faithfulness of God. What a, what a powerful legacy to leave behind of some individual as a Christian man or a Christian woman who continues on in the faithfulness of God and points and directs and reminds other people of God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness in the ups, God's faithfulness in the downs, God's faithfulness before hardship, during hardship, after hardship. A simple interesting text. And we're reminded about the powerful faithfulness of God. So very simply, how do we leave a legacy for those behind us? We live a godly example that others can see and follow we serve God to the very end, obey God wholeheartedly, and recognize the faithfulness of God.